Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you for coming and uh, worshiping with us today. Uh, we are now in part six of our eight-week series that we have entitled uh, Genuine Follower. And uh, this series is designed to, to help all of us, whether uh, you're a brand new Christian or whether you've been a, a Christian for a long period of time, to understand what does it mean to, to live an authentic Christian life. Now, for some of you, uh, the things that we've been sharing have been uh, brand new, uh, new information to you. For others, it is review. And, and regardless, uh, we all need this. We all need to... Uh, contemplate and understand what it means to live a fully devoted uh, life to Jesus Christ. And it's difficult, and we need to be uh, encouraged and challenged. So uh, I'm going to just kind of dive in this morning, no uh, fancy illustrations. We're going to start off uh, with a big idea. It's up here on the big screen, and it's this. For today, a, a genuine follower of Jesus recognizes God's ownership of all things, everything, one's possessions, oneself, and then they faithfully steward all of those things to advance God's kingdom. That's what an authentic follower of Jesus Christ does. Now, this is a challenge for most of us, because if you're anything like me, you want to be in control of your life. Uh, we pride ourselves in the ability to, to own things. Uh, we work hard and we sacrifice to, to purchase a car or to, to buy a cell phone or uh, to acquire a home or to save for retirement or, or to build a business. We also pride ourselves in, in being in control of the things that are going on in our lives. We work hard to improve our education and expand our skills and strengthen our body and, and grow our mind and, and express our creativity. And so the idea that God is uh, both the, the owner of everything that we possess and the owner of our very selves and that he has the right to determine what we do with those things, it rubs us the wrong way. But... The bottom line is this, that's the reality of living an authentic Christian life. And that's what I want to show you this morning as we make our way through Matthew chapter 25. Uh, we're going to look at the parable of the talents. It's going to be verses 14 through 30. Now, in order to, to do this, before we read it, I want, to, I want to give you the context. Because if you don't have the context of the parable of the talents, you're going you're gonna to head in completely wrong directions. So Matthew 25 is set in the final week of Jesus's earthly life. Jesus and his disciples, they, they have made their way to uh, the Jewish capital city of Jerusalem. And by the end of the week, uh, he will be arrested, he will be tried, he will be brutalized, he will be convicted, he will be murdered on a cross and ultimately raised again to life on the third day. And Jesus, he understands that this is going to be a terrible experience for his disciples. It's going to be horrible for him, but it's also going to be horrible for these people who've been following him for the last 
three years. So in the, the preceding chapter, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus goes and, and attempts to encourage his disciples by giving them the big picture. He wants them to see what the future is going to look like. And so through all of, of chapter 24, Jesus spends time telling his disciples about the end of the age, the end of the world as we know it, and the fact that the end of the age is ultimately going to morph into the new heaven and the new earth, which will be ushered in when Jesus returns in glory and establishes the kingdom of God. And so he says, hey, this is what's going to happen, but leading up to this is going to be really hard. And he warns them of the struggles that are going to occur, that there are going to be wars and rumors of wars, that, that nations are going to rise up against nations, that, that false prophets are going to come into the world, and these false prophets are going to deceive people into doing crazy things. He speaks of, of the suddenness of what you and I know is, is the rapture where, where Christians will be taken into glory with God and, and non-Christians will be left behind. And it says that, you know, two people will be working in the field. One will go away and be taken up into glory. The other will be left behind. And it's both dreadful what he's sharing, but it's also both hopeful. And then he reminds his first century disciples and he reminds us that no one knows the day or the time. And so he says in verse 44 of Matthew 24, Therefore, you also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And it's at this point in Matthew 25 where Jesus begins to share a series of parables. Parables are a story that, that has a, a moral to it or a religious principle tied to it. And it tells and what he does in these parables that he shares, it's, it's what you and I are supposed to do as we await Jesus' return. The first parable that's in Matthew 25 is the parable of the ten virgins. It's a story of 10 young women who are waiting for the appearance of a groom at a wedding. And, and we're told, Jesus tells us, there were five wise, wise women, wise young women, wise virgins, and there were five foolish ones. And the five that were wise were, were prepared for uh, the groom to come to the wedding feast. But the five that were foolish were not prepared. And the whole point of, of that story was that, that we need to be prepared as we diligently wait for Jesus' return. Now the second, which we're going to look at today, which is called the parable of the talents, is all about not, not diligently waiting for Jesus' return, but actually diligently working while we wait for Jesus' return. So let's see what it has to say. If you have a Bible with you, open up to Matthew 25. We're going to start in verse 14. Uh, we're going to read the first five verses of the parable, and then we'll kind of catch up the balance of it as we work our way through the message. If uh, you don't have a Bible with you or a Bible app on your phone, there's Bibles around the room. Please feel free to get up and get one of those. You'll find Matthew 25 on page 830 of the Bibles that we provide. And uh, if you are able to stand in honor of God's word, would you please do so? Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. 
For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. He gave to one, he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. And so he who had, uh, and also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Now, this parable that Jesus tells, there are four characters in it. The the first character is the owner, the master, and uh, he is going away on a journey. And in this parable, the owner, the master, is Jesus. And, And the journey that he is taking is the time period between Jesus' first coming, his advent that occurred 2,000 years ago, and his second coming, which is going to occur sometime in the future. So that's the journey that we're talking about right now. And the remaining three characters are the man's servants. But folks, they really aren't servants. They're actually slaves Because that's what the Greek word doulos actually means. It it means slaves. And it has been gently translated by the editors of the ESV Bible to servants. You see, the ESV editors, they, they knew that slaves was a loaded term in the 21st century. So, so they tried to moderate it a little bit, to, to make it a little bit more palatable. They, they, they're making it kind of like, uh, I was sitting in, in the chair here as we were singing, the thing came to my mind. I remember as a kid, I used to watch Batman. And, and Batman had a, a butler. And I, I think his name, was it Arthur? Alfred, that's what I, I knew it wasn't Arthur. It was Alfred. Folks, we're not talking about Alfred here, okay? Alfred was working for Bruce Wayne of his own desires, Folks, we're, we're talking slaves. And, and when you and I, we hear the word slaves, we are immediately taken back to the chattel slavery of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century that brutalized and dehumanized 12.5 million Africans. That was a slavery that was Afrocentric. It was a slavery of chains and beatings and rapes. It was a slavery where there was virtually no possibility of freedom. And it was a slavery that in some ways still haunts our culture today. But that wasn't the slavery of the first century Roman world. And that's why the ESV editors, they use the word servants, because they don't want you to get confused here. But the the slavery of the first century Roman world looked different. Okay, it had nothing to do with the color of one's skin. Anyone of any ethnicity in the first century could become a slave. You could become a slave if if you were on the losing side of a war. You could become a, a slave if you didn't pay your debts, if your parents needed cash and you weren't the favored child, your parents could sell you into slavery. 
If you broke the law, the judge could, could sentence you to slavery. If you were born to a mother who was a slave, regardless of who your dad was, you became a slave. You could even give yourself into slavery voluntarily if you wanted to escape poverty. And of course, you could be taken into slavery forcibly. And as such, the, the, the slaves in the first century were, were wildly diverse. They could be Italians, Greeks, Egyptians, Ethiopians. They could be highly educated and highly skilled. They, they could be an accountant who, who messed up and went bankrupt and got sold, you know, to pay his debts, became a slave. They could be business owners or managers, or they could be someone who's unskilled. Yet while they were diverse, they've got one thing in common. And that one thing is that they are owned by a master. Now, some of these slaves, especially those who were highly skilled, served as overseers and managers in their master's household. They, they were highly trusted, and they had great freedom to act on behalf of their master. And that was the case of these three guys that Jesus is talking about in his story. And these are people, you know, where the master represents Jesus. These slaves, they represent followers of Jesus Christ. People like you and me. So, so Jesus is the owner, and, and you and I, Jesus' followers, are the slaves. Now, there's another thing that we need to recognize if we're going to understand this parable, and it's this. We have to understand what in the world is this thing called a talent. The term talent that is being used here in the first century has nothing to do with a skill. It's not the ability to juggle. It's not the ability to dunk a basketball or to play the oboe. A talent is all about money, dinero, jingwa, cash. That's what it's about. Specifically, a talent was a measure of a type of money that was being weighed. So it depends what type of money is getting weighed is, is how much a talent is actually worth. If you had a talent of gold, worth a lot of money, $2.2 million in today's market. If you had a talent of silver, which would be the, the same weight as a talent of gold, it was roughly worth $24,000. If you had a talent of copper, it was worth less, roughly $4,000. So, so those are the basics. We got, we got Jesus is the master, we're the slaves, and a talent has nothing to do with being able to, to uh, be really great at pickleball, all right? It has everything to do with the weight of money. So out of this, Jesus is trying to teach us a couple truths. I'm going to give them to you right up front so that we have them, and then we'll go and we'll explore them a little bit. Truth number one. God, Jesus, owns every resource. Truth number two, God, Jesus, entrusts to us some of his resources. Number three, God, Jesus, expects us 
to use the resources which he entrusted us to advance his kingdom. Number four, God, Jesus, rewards the faithfulness of the faithful. I like that. The last one, not so pleasant. God, Jesus, punishes the unfaithfulness of the unfaithful. So let's look at these for a few moments. God owns every resource. So if Jesus is the master, what in the world does this master actually own? Well, according to the Bible, he owns absolutely everything. I'm just going to kind of give you some rapid machine gun scriptures here that talk about God's ownership of everything. In Colossians chapter 1, there is an ancient hymn that is recorded. It's a, a hymn that I spent an entire semester in seminary studying because that was the assignment. It says this, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all those who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. You see, Jesus owns it all. Why? Because he created it all. The, folk who, the person who's the creator gets to be the, the owner. That's the way that it works. Now, Jesus owns a lot of stuff. He owns every living creature. Psalm 50. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world and the fullness are all mine. I don't need you, basically, he says. Jesus even owns us. 1 Corinthians 6. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You, Mike Cleonzo, are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I, I was, as I was studying, I read a quote from a, a pastor by the name of Randy Alcorn. This is what he said about that. He said, if we are God's children... We are twice his, first by creation and second by redemption. God owns us doubly because he created us and then he redeemed us. But he doesn't just own us, he grants us the ability for you and I to do the things that we actually do. In Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read this. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore, you to, swore to your fathers as it is this day. Folks, until we get this, until we understand that, that, that God is the owner of all things, including our lives, we will always be in a state of conflict with the Lord. We will be constantly asserting our own ownership and our own control, and Jesus will constantly be asserting his own ownership and his own control. And we know who's going to win in that battle, right? Now, I can remember 
And if I have shared this story in the past, forgive me. I can remember when Kathy and I were in the midst of the adoption process. Uh, we were trying to control everything. And if any of you ha have ever adopted a child, any of you have ever taken care of a, like a foster child, you will realize that, that you are not in control. All of it, everything is out of your control. We're trying to control things. We're getting super frustrated. We had our time frame. Jesus had his time frame. We had our idea of the child that we desired. Jesus had his own idea of the child that we were going to get. Now, after about 12 months of trying to do things our way, to no avail, lots of shed tears, many nights Kathy and I sitting up talking to one another, we finally came to the conclusion that we needed to surrender to God's ownership and control of all things. So back in the fall of 1996, we wrote a letter. That's one of those things that you actually, you put on paper and put in an envelope, <laughs> put a stamp on it. There were these things, they may exist now, they were called mailboxes. You actually put the envelope in the mailbox and we sent it to our adoption agency in Columbus, Georgia, and told them that, that Kathy and I were willing to take whatever child that they thought that we should have in whatever time frame they thought that we should do. Because we were, we were, we were, we were done. We were surrendered. Three days later, before the letter ever arrived at the adoption agency, Kathy receives a call and tells us, uh, the adoption worker tells us that our daughter Nicole had been, been born. You see, Jesus was waiting for us to surrender to him, to acknowledge his ownership and, and control of, of all things. And, and then when we did what we needed to do, Jesus opens the floodgates and he blesses us. And every time I see Nicole, I'm, I'm, I'm reminded, it's impossible not to be reminded that, that, that God owns all things. And, and, and he does what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants, in any way that he wants. And that brings us to our second point. See, God comes along, not only does he own everything, but God entrusts us with some of his resources. Look again at verses 14 and 15. For a bull will be like a, a man going on a journey, okay, who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now I want you to notice what, what Jesus, the master, does here. He calls his three slaves together, and he entrusts him, them with some of his property. And how does he entrust it to them? There's a qualifier here. It says what? He does it each according to his ability. In other words, the, the master, he, he knows his slaves. 
He, he knows their, their capabilities. He, he knows what they could be trusted with. He didn't give them more than they could handle, and he didn't give them less than they could handle. So to the first guy, he gives five talents. If it's gold, we're talking 11 million bucks, folks. If it's silver, it's 120K. Either way, that's a lot of cash. The second guy gets two talents. The third guy gets one talent. Now, I want you to know, notice how incredibly generous the master is. To the one guy, he gets somewhere between $4,000 and $24,000. I would imagine if someone came up to you and gave you between four dollars and $24,000, you would feel like that person was being relatively generous. Now, it's important for us to understand that God is, is generous with us, but he doesn't entrust every person with the same amount of his possessions. Now, why is that? Folks, we're all different. We all have different skills. We all have different abilities. We, we all have different passions. We've got different temperaments, different work ethics, different uh, capacities to handle stress and temptation and pride. If God gave somebody, he could give somebody $100,000. Maybe they're lousy at managing money. They could lose that $100,000 tomorrow. We're not all the same, and that's okay. Because one isn't any better than the other. We're just different. And in the midst of our differences, folks, we still need one another. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 12 he, he compares the people of God to a body, right? He says, some of us are eyes, some of us are ears, some of us are noses, which I probably fall in because I've got this large Italian snoz, all right? I mean, he, and, and, but we're, we're different, right? But for the body to function, we all need one another. So it doesn't matter what our role in God's kingdom is or how much he's entrusted us with. What matters is how faithful are we with that which God has entrusted to us. So here we have these three slaves. Each is entrusted by their master with a boatload of cash. And according to the end of verse 15, they have been left alone by the master for a very, very, very long period of time. So what are they supposed to do between the time that the master leaves and the time that the master comes back? Well, verses 16 and 18 tell, through 18 tell us, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, notice, nobody had to be told what to do. Everybody knew exactly 
what to do. Not everybody did what they were supposed to do, but at least the first two guys did. They got about utilizing the master's possessions uh, for the master's benefit. Now, this brings me to the next point, and it's this. God expects us to use his resources for the advancement of his kingdom. Now, in order to understand this section of scripture, we need to understand what the word trade means. Because it's a really important word here. We're not talking about trading stocks. There was no, you know, uh, Jerusalem Stock Exchange. That didn't exist. You couldn't, like, just put your money into the, the, the stock market and, and watch it grow. You couldn't invest in Simon Peter boat building. Didn't exist, all right? Uh, you, you couldn't invest in, in Maximus chariots and, and chainmail manufacturing company. You couldn't, you know, maybe, maybe you don't like, those are kind of, you know, boats and stuff like that. Maybe you're a lady, you want something maybe a little softer. You couldn't invest in Lydia's dye works and gruel house, all right? None of that existed. There was none of that. So uh, when you traded, it's not a passive endeavor. It's an active endeavor. Trading back then involved being creative, You had to start a business, develop a product, create a service, build inventory, hire employees, find customers. It it was work. These two dudes, they were not sitting on their behinds waiting for their money to grow. Nor were they doing it for themselves. They were busy figuring out how in the world do we expand the master's possessions. And brothers and sisters, that's what we're called to do. We're called to take whatever God has entrusted to us. It's going to be different with everyone. But whatever God has entrusted to us, and we are to move God's interest forward while we diligently and patiently wait for Jesus to come back. That is why when we read in Colossians 3 this, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for man, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. When you read that passage, you're supposed to work as unto the Lord, not as unto man. Why? Because whatever you have, whatever you're doing, it's God's. I, I mean... Pastor Ben and Bongo, they're they're not working for me. They're working for the Lord. You you might be a school teacher or a doctor or or a construction worker or a salesperson or or whatever. You're you're not working for your boss. They, They may think you're working for them, but you're working for someone who is watching everything you do at every moment. You talk about someone who's a micromanager, God is a micromanager because he knows everything. He knows when you're really working and when you're not working. He knows when you're at home saying work from home and you're doing the laundry or walking the dog. He knows that. He gets it. Your boss may not, but he knows it. You see, every resource that God has entrusted us is to be used for his glory. 
God has entrusted me and the elder board and our church staff with this church family and all of its resources. And as such, we are called to advance God's kingdom, not our own. The same is true for you. God has entrusted you with a house, or he's entrusted you with, a, with an apartment, or it may even be just a room and a boarding house, but he's entrusted you with that. What are you going to do with that to advance God's kingdom? He has entrusted us with a car, with a savings account, with a job or social security or welfare. He's given us an education. He has placed you in a country that is overflowing with freedom, with relative safety, and lots of opportunity. He's given us all of those things. And we are called to be faithful with all of them to advance his kingdom. And while we wait for his return, we're to use all of these things ultimately for his glory. And we are to share the resources that God has entrusted us. And we are to care for them and we are to grow them, not for ourselves, but ultimately for him. This reminds me of uh, the beginning of Psalm 115. Uh, the field hockey team at Harrisburg Christian School. I think this was their, their life verse, if I remember right. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. You see, all the resources that God has provided us, even the ability to beat women over the head with field hockey sticks, all right, is for God's glory. It's ultimately there for him. Now, the first two slaves... Folks, they figured it out. They took what the, the master entrusted to them and they doubled it. If the first guy had been entrusted with gold, he took it from 11 million bucks to 22 million bucks. If the second guy was entrusted with gold, he took it from 4.4 million up to 8.8 .8 million bucks. That's what I'm talking about. That's amazing stuff. But then there was this third slave. And you cannot forget at this point that these slaves represent people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. You can't forget that right here. The slave was entrusted with a measly $2.2 million. He's got a lot of cash. Even though he didn't get what the other slaves got, he got a lot. And sadly, rather than getting busy, rather than working, rather than using what God had entrusted to him to expand God's kingdom, he instead buried it in the ground and waited for the master's return. So which one of these slaves describes you? And which one of these slaves describes me? What are we doing with the resources that God has entrusted us? Are we actively using them to advance God's kingdom 
Are we seeking to, to give God a good return on that which he has invested in us? Or are we burying them in the ground, using them for ourselves and ourselves alone? What are we doing with the place where we live? What are we doing with a car that we drive? You say, Pastor Mike, how can I use the car for God's glory? You, you stand out front in the lobby here one day, and you watch what happens. There are people using their cars for God's glory all the time. Miss Dottie shows up, and she's gone and got Miss Ella. Somebody else has brought another person. Gary Hall's car disgorges people out of it. And they're using the car for God's glory. What do we do with that? What do we do with the job that we have? How are we using that for God's glory? Or the education we've gained, or the hobbies we enjoyed, or the time and talents that we have been given? I mean, we have all of these things because God has given them to us. I have a friend who's a politician. I talked with them one, one day, and I, I was encouraging them to use their office for the glory of God. And this individual broke my heart because they said, no, no, I, I can't bring my Christian life into the work that I do at the Capitol. I could have wept right there. I could have wept. God isn't asking you to beat people over the head with your Christianity. But he's asking us to use whatever he's entrusted to us, ultimately for his glory. What do we do with the hobbies that we enjoy? Or the time and talents we have been given? Are we other focused on intentionally using what God has given us for the advancement of God's glorious kingdom? Or are we self-focused on our pathetic little fiefdom that we have? I challenge you to seriously consider these questions. And folks, I'm preaching as much to you as I'm preaching to myself. Because there is a day when Jesus is going to come back and he's going to hold us accountable for what we've done. And if he doesn't come back in our lifetime, he doesn't come to us, every one of us is ultimately going to go to him. We don't know when. And he is going to hold us accountable. That's exactly what happened to our slaves. Look at verses 29 through, uh, or 19 through 23. I'm watching the clock, making sure I'm under control. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I've made five more talents for you. <clears throat> master, you have, and, and, oh, and his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I've made two talents more. 
His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. This brings us to, to our next point. It says, God rewards the faithfulness of the faithful. I love what happens here. The master has been away for a super long time. And when he returns to settle the accounts, the first two slaves, they are eager to report what they've done. Notice the first thing they say. Master, you've delivered five talents to me, and I've made you five more. The other guys, you gave me two talents, I've made you two more. They are recognizing that all that they had ultimately came from him. Even all the stuff that they developed with his stuff. Any success that they experienced was solely based on the initial generosity of the master. And brothers and sisters, any stuff that you and I have, we have it because of the initial generosity of God. And it's only then, after they acknowledge God had given them this stuff, that they report what they've done. And in reality, folks, they really didn't do anything special. They just did what was ultimately expected of them. Jesus speaks of this attitude in Luke chapter 17. He says this, So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we're unworthy servants because we've only done what was our duty. That should be our attitude. God, I doubled your stuff. I'm still unworthy. Why? Because I've just simply done what I was supposed to do. And as I worked through this passage, I couldn't help but think about what has occurred here over the last 23 years. God has provided absolutely everything. The startup money, the original eight couples, the Rutherford Elementary School, 28 acres of primo real estate for $250,000, the resources to develop this campus, and most of all, God has provided all of you. This beautiful canvas of people from every different ethnicity and economic status and educational background and life experience and ability. And God, he has entrusted all of this to you and me. This isn't my church. It's God's church, but it's, it's our church. Like, it drives me crazy when people say, your church, but I'm like, this is not my church. It's, it's, it's our church. And, and together, God entrusted this stuff to us, right? And, and, and we went to work using his resources to advance his kingdom. And before we knew it, there's a food pantry and a car repair ministry, and a compassion ministry, and ESL, and grief share, and family and adult ministries, and women and men's ministries, and venture, and focus, and scores of other ministries that are advancing the gospel in central Pennsylvania and around the world. God pr produced all the initial stuff, and you and I, we just did 
what was expected. We didn't do anything great. We just showed up and did what we were called to do. So we can't be proud. We can just say, God, I did what you called me to do. I did no more. And it is a joy to be involved in that kind of process because Jesus comes along and he says these beautiful words in verse 21. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Surely God, he rewards the faithfulness of the faithful. But that's only half the story. Here's the flip side. Not everybody uses what God has entrusted them for the advancement of God's kingdom. There are some who fail to be faithful, and in that case, we find the final slave. Look at verses 24 to 30. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you sowed, scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown, I gather where I have not had uh, scattered no seed, then you ought to have invested my money with bankers because they may not have had a stock market back then, but they did have banks. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness in that place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Folks, that goes against our world's narrative because in our world, God is supposed to be this nice, wonderful guy who doesn't hold you accountable for anything. But that's not what we find in God's word. You see, we find in God's word that God punishes the unfaithfulness of the unfaithful. And much of this speaks for itself, so I don't need to, to belabor it, but there is one thing that I don't want us to miss. In the beginning, I told you that the master represented Jesus and the three slaves represented people who have professed faith in Jesus Christ like you and me. However, the fact of the matter is this. There are some people who identify as Christians but their actions prove that they are really imposters who have deceived themselves and others, but they're not deceiving God. The third slave was such the person. How do we know that? Briefly, two reasons. Reasons I've gleaned from reading a commentary which, of a person, uh, John MacArthur, much smarter than me. Reason number one, the third slave produced absolutely nothing with which God had entrusted to him. He didn't even attempt to advance God's kingdom. He did nothing of the sort. 
It would have been one thing if he tried and failed, but he didn't even do that. He asked any staff member who comes here to Living Water, I sit down and I have a conversation with them when they start, and I tell them this. When you lead your ministry, I want you to dream big. I want you to plan thoroughly. I want you to give everything that you have. And if you fail, I want you to crash and burn big. Why? Because we gave it all. I want it to be a complete, massive destruction. Because when we fail, it won't be because we didn't prepare. Now, that wasn't the slave. He didn't even try. But there is a second reason how we can be sure that servant was a pretender. And it's because he didn't really know the master. Remember he says that I knew you to be a hard man and then you reap where you didn't sow and gather where you didn't plant or whatever. And God comes back and he says, you know, you knew that I, I reaped where I didn't sow and I gathered where I didn't gather or plant or whatever. But notice God never acknowledges that he's hard. You see, this servant, he didn't even understand his master. And that's how it is with a lot of people in this world. They don't look at God through the lenses of the Bible. They look at God through the lenses of the world, through the lenses of their experience, through the lenses of our culture, and they conclude that he is mean and nasty. But the fact of the matter is we have this glorious God who, who, it is true, he is a God of wrath, and he will come back, and he is going to punish. But he is also the God of salvation. The God who, who, who went to the cross and died on our behalf so that you and I might live. And he is calling us to advance that kingdom. To, that, that everything that we have in our lives should be designed to point people to Jesus, to what he has done on the cross, to point people to their great need to be forgiven of their sins and this great Savior who has done the forgiving for them and who's paid the price. And so as we leave this place on Super Bowl Sunday, 2024, one day closer to either when Jesus is coming back or one day closer to when you're going to go meet him yourself, I pray that you will look at all the things that you have and you will ask yourself, how am I using these resources which God has entrusted to me for his kingdom and his glory. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. Lord, you should have crushed us. You should have destroyed us, Father. We are full of sin. Yet in your great love, you sent your son to come and, and live and die and rise again so that, Lord, we might be saved. Lord, thank you for the sacrifice that Jesus has done on the cross. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that, that your son took your gifts that you entrusted to him and used them for, his or for your glory. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that, that this church family, Living Water Community Church, whether we have a lot that this world thinks is a lot or a little that this world thinks is a little, that all of it 
would be designed and used for the advancement of your kingdom. And it's through your son's name we pray. Amen.